Welcome to Startup to Last, a podcast about building profitable software businesses that are meant to last. Hi, I'm Tyler. I run a bootstrapped SaaS company called Less Annoying CRM. And hi, I'm Rick. I'm the founder of Leg Up Ventures, which owns and operates software companies that empower underdogs. This week, we're going to talk about dealing with impatience if you're a manager. Sometimes when you have a vision for what you want to see accomplished and it's taking longer than you expected, uh, that impatience can kind of trickle down to your team and it can cause real problems. Um, Rick is thinking about scaling out the team at Leg Up Health, and so he's starting to think through these problems before he makes his first hire. Before we get into any of that, let's give some updates. So what's up this week, Tyler? Uh, it was a busy week last week, and I think things have kind of slowed down for me a little bit, which I like. Um, so I the, the main thing I had been working on is a kind of presentation to the whole company about our kind of reaction to the COVID-19, st- well, less to the the health side of it doesn't really affect us, but like the financial stuff. So I, I feel like this week, th- th- these last two weeks, we've been seeing numbers go down a little bit as you'd expect in a recession. But um, over the last seven days, we're down 170 users net, which is significant for us. So like we're starting to see the results of this. And I, I kind of gave a presentation to the company talking about what are we expecting? What are we doing to prepare for it? All that. Yeah, I watched your presentation. It was incredible. In fact, I write an article once a week for ricklinquist.com. My article is going to profile you and my friend Zach Zitzos uh, as two of the most like inspiring leaders I have in my network. Oh, well, thank you. I yeah. <laughs> I didn't think inspiring would be the uh, the takeaway from that, but I appreciate it. Well, true leadership is tested when you're delivering bad news and facing uncertain times and being able to deliver that calmly, but speak the truth, deliver the hard talk uh, and make people feel safe but at the same time face reality. That is hard. And I thought you did an awesome job with that in the presentation. I'm sure you've, I'd love to hear if you've got any feedback from employees. I'm sure they're in very appreciative. I've gotten some feedback, um, all, all positive so far. Now, it's worth saying one of the main thing, like I was basically saying things could get bad, but there will not be layoffs. And I kind of went through a case, even if we lose 50% of our revenue, we still don't need to do layoffs. So probably it would be a whole different story if, you know, some companies are in a position where they have no option but to do layoffs. And that would be a much, much harder thing to deal with. Yeah, I'm not talking, the content that you delivered is not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the way you delivered it. And I think that if you did have to do layoffs, your your tone and the way you would have approached that would have been no different. And it would have made people face reality, but also not feel bad about facing it. It was very inspiring. Gotcha. Cool. Well, I appreciate that. And yeah, I do think that, that what I've what I've heard is everybody kind of said, I'm ready for this. I get that I'm going to have to sacrifice here and like, let's go do it. So I feel good about the response we've gotten. Are you going to share that publicly? Um, I think almost all of it I would be comfortable sharing. The only thing is it does like say everyone's salary in it because it runs through the scenarios of like, you know, if we drop this much in revenue, what might happen to our salaries? I'm comfortable sharing mine. I don't know that I want to share everyone else's. Mm-hmm. So probably not. I posted like a tweet storm with kind of the summary, but it was abbreviated, obviously. Well, thank you for sharing it with me. I feel lucky to have been able to watch it yeah absolutely 
next crisis when you've got your big team of people you can you can send me yours <laughs> yeah it's funny i'm i i am somewhat jealous of you to be able to work with people through this um uh i had to tell myself today this morning when i woke up just be like you know be patient keep mm-hmm. plugging away this you're to build a startup to last company you've got to get to a a place before you can uh, you have to get the company to a place before you can you can build a team um in order to avoid having to raise venture capital so i had to do some self-talk today to <laughs> to get me out of a, a cycle yeah i mean there are some parallels here because like less annoying serum started basically at the very bottom of the last economic crisis now we're probably not at the bottom yet here but um, not too different in terms of the timing of when you're when you're starting your thing nope nope um aside from that uh one thing we've been looking at at work is you know the stimulus package or whatever it's called um there's the ppp thing the payroll protection program um which is kind of like an sba loan that they, they're calling it a loan, but it's completely forgiven if it's used for payroll, basically. So it's more like a grant. So uh, we're getting ready to apply for that. So applications for that will probably go live tomorrow or Monday. So we're ready for that. And that actually is going to make a significant difference for us, I think. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, I, I feel a little bad because like the, the reality is we need the money in the sense that the, the way they phrase the question is, is the uncertain does the uncertainty make this necessary? Not like have you already been impacted in a way that makes this necessary, which is true for us. But there are other companies that have already been impacted, and I feel a little bad having any money go to us because the reality is we we could get through it as a company without totally failing. We probably couldn't do that without reducing salaries and stuff like that. So I think this is what the money's for. But there are other companies that are in even having harder times than us. You know. Yeah, I don't think right now is the time to be prideful. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> That's a good way to put that. Um, and then the final thing I've got here is I, for the first time in my life, started to, like keeping a journal. Um, and what I saw, uh, some, someone I follow on Twitter said this, and I thought it made a lot of sense. He basically said, we all know we're living through history right now. And things are changing so quickly that like, if we don't write it down, all we're going to be left with is the version that we remember in hindsight, which is not really going to be accurate because even just comparing, you know, day to day, like a week ago, if you said, I'm going to go to the grocery store, should I wear a face mask? I would have said, no, that's not necessary. And right now, if you ask me, I'm saying, yeah, I'm going to wear a face mask. Uh, you know, things kind of change over time. And like he kind of said, you want a snapshot of how your take on it has changed because that's going to be really interesting to kind of reflect on later. Interesting. Yeah, that's that's great. Yeah. So I started it. It was it was I kind of went back retroactively and said, like, starting in uh, the first time I ever had a conversation with another human about this, I remember was watching the Super Bowl this year. So I went back there and was like, that's the first time I talked about it with someone. They were a doctor and told me, you know, it's probably fine. And not, not that they were uh, I'm not trying to like say they were wrong or anything, but that was the first time I was like, oh, OK, this isn't a big deal <laughs> all the way up to now. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> anyway, uh, that's me for this week. What are you well, up to? Well, I have a question on that. Are you are you yeah. going to keep this journal private, or are you going to post it on like TylerKing.net? Um, that's a fair question. I'm right now. I'm not putting enough. Eff- like, I would have to put more effort into it because it's like stuff that would make sense to me. Like, I'm using a lot of jargon that I will know and stuff like that. Um, 
I hadn't actually thought about that at all. I don't have a personal website or anything like that up right now. If I did, I would probably post it there. What I was thinking is maybe after this is all over, kind of summarizing it and and making it more digestible. Yeah, that'd be an interesting post for less annoying CRM. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, you and I have been talking about after this is all over, potentially, it, it's almost too late to to plan for this downturn. But there will be another one in the future. And like, what are all the things we can learn from this that we can basically say you have at least five to 10 years before something like this happens again, hopefully, what can you do to prepare for when it does happen? Yep. And there's a lot of learnings that you're, that I'm, especially you are going to have coming out of this that I'm, I'm excited to share in. Yeah. Well, we'll see. Anyway. Yeah. How about you? Um, I'm still working through my routine changes. Like I, my sleeping, ha- like my sleeping schedule, is way off. Uh, staying up later, waking up later. Um, it got to a point last week where it was re- like three in the morning to mm. like super late in the in the morning, which is really aw- doesn't make me feel good. So this week I've been ratcheting back my wake up, ratcheting forward, I guess forward back, or ratcheting my wake up time earlier. So that's getting way better. Um, and then the other thing is like, it, it seemed like every week my workout routine, my new workout routine would get crushed. So originally it was go downstairs, get on the elliptical for 30 minutes and do some sit-ups and pull-ups and push-ups, right. And some squats. And, uh, then they took, they closed the, the condo gym. So then it was, we'll walk across the street to the other gym and do the same thing. Then they, then they closed that gym. Then it was, let's go shoot basketball at the basketball gym. Then they close the basketball gym. So this is like one one closure a week. And so now I'm just like Are, are you like out figuring s- out how to work out like in your apartment and stuff like yes, that? Yes. Yes. And I just got off the bike before this podcast, stationary bike. It's 30 degrees outside. I'm not gonna go run in 30 degree weather. That's miserable. So I I uh I'm I'm still working through it, but uh um I'm I'm realizing that while I don't have necessarily a huge economic impact on me right now in terms of how coronavirus is affecting me, mental health-wise, it is really affecting me, um, primarily as it relates to you know, eating well, sleeping well, and and physical activity. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, I'm, I've sort of refocused on that being a primary thing each week until I can get it to a stable place. Yeah, I've heard that from other people who get a lot of exercise like you do. I'm I'm not particularly active normally, so this hasn't been a huge adjustment for me, but I've heard people basically say I you know, it's 10 o'clock, 10:30 whenever I no- normally go to bed, and since I haven't gone outside all day, I didn't I'm not tired, and so I stay up for another hour or two and then I I sleep in and then I'm even less tired the next day and it sounds like maybe that's part of what happened to you. Oh, it's vicious. Yeah. So yeah, that that's um I'm still working through that, but I I now that I I am basing my workout routines on things I can control. They're not based on third parties. I feel like this, I'll get this fixed. I should have done that from the beginning. I don't know why I didn't just, you know, realize what was going to happen, but that's been uh, one of my main, like, like things I'm trying to change about my response to all of this crisis stuff is 
for a while, it was like, I've got another three days before this will be forced upon me. And it should just be like, we can all see where this is going. Let's just lean into that and, and live life that way in advance. You don't want to yeah, be behind on this stuff. Yeah. One thing you said in your presentation, I think, was like, it's better to overreact than underreact. And I wish I had overreacted to my routine changes and said, okay, let's assume that I can't get out of the apartment you know, let's, let's build a workout. Let's build a healthy, let's replace my healthy routines in the house. And then if I don't have to do that, then I can adjust them. Um, I, I've been just slowly ratcheting back and been, you know, constantly forced to change things and it's very unhealthy. So, um, that's, I like that. Uh, the other thing I'm working on this week is I'm transitioning a, uh, new transitioning Panda Labs to a new community platform. And I say I because it's my role within the organization to do the initial technology transition. We're transitioning from one community platform to another. And it's not as straightforward as you'd think because you've got people who are on the old platform, the old billing, and then you've got a spread, you know, a bunch of different se separate um, uh, data sources for how we share information with members. And... Uh, the the next um, the new platform has to replicate all that, but not make it painful for members to make the transition because we can't afford to have churn. So, just to make sure I understand, when you say platform, it's like a kind of a SaaS product or a web portal thing that your members of the community log into to get whatever value they get out of the community, and you're just switching to a different provider for that stuff. Yeah, the first the current provider is a provider called TidyHQ, and they have a great like sort of member to um, admin or community manager interface, but not a whole lot of member to member functionality. Um, so we're switching to Mighty Networks and Mighty Networks has both the admin slash community leader to member functionality in addition to the uh, member to member sort of uh, natural um, relationship building on a virtual basis. So they have all the things that you find in Facebook and LinkedIn groups. They have the concept of sharing tweets, but all in a private community and chatting with each other. So that it, it should let us um, enable more relationship building and, and sense of community, both during the coronavirus stay at home stuff, but more importantly for the long term, we're going to continue to have events eventually, but allowing more relationships to form between events um, digitally would be really big for us. Cool. So I'm working on that. I hope to get phase. We, we've, we have, we have a five phase transition plan and I hope to get phase one done this week. Um, build V one. Um, so the third thing is uh, I am working a lot on leg up health this week. I have uh, pretty, I've outlined the entire service flow um, based on that press release. You asked me to write and I realized, so, so backing up last week I shared, Two weeks ago, we talked about a startup manifesto. Um, I, I I left thinking, okay, I don't need to do a manifesto, but I do do need to write something that helps me articulate to myself what the product needs to be for launch. Um, and so I did that, and I realized it's far less about you know it's far less about um, building a web app. It's far more about building a service experience that you know is scalable for me that I can test and improves significantly improves the health insurance experience for my client. And it's a much bigger, it's a much broader list than what I had originally um, outlined, 
but it's significantly less deep. So uh, I've, I've, I've actually, because it's less deep, I'm able to go a lot faster because the technical complexity is, uh, is, is less. So I've launched um, a new onboarding flow for people who request access at leg up health that basically automates my 30 minute qualification conversation. And so when someone requests access, they'll be put into that form. And if they don't fill it out, I'll send them an, an automated email to schedule a call with me. Um, uh, so in case they didn't want to go through the form. And so hopefully that will, I'll see people who I can get to go request access, fill out that form and it will self-qualify them and gather the information necessary to, to onboard them onto the platform. Then um, uh, I've also, so there's this concept, a big part of my bu- my business will be, there are, there are sort of backing up, there are two sort of situation types for clients that I'll be serving at Leg Up Health. One is a um, person who currently has their own individual health insurance policy and they just want better service. They don't want to change their plan. Um, and then there's the other group is people who don't have health insurance, but due to a recent life event need to buy one. Um, and so they need help actually buying a new plan. Um, when you, when you sell, when you, when you, when you help someone buy a new plan, you become the broker from the beginning. And so it's just, it's just, a, it's much simpler. You just log, you know, help them buy the plan and then they, you are assigned as the broker and you start receiving that commission. The other group is a little bit more complicated because you don't, you didn't, you didn't help them buy the plan initially. So you're not considered the broker. So you actually have to have them fill out a, a form. You both have to sign the form and then you have to submit that to the insurance company to have, you know, the carrier place you as the broker, what's called the broker of record, BOR or agent of record, agent of record or AOR. And so, so there's all, every carrier has a unique form um, with unique da- data that needs to be implant, input into that. And so I've built um, an integration with my database and uh, PandaDoc to automatically generate the AOR based on the select, based on the um, insurance company that those that group has, and automatically send the uh, AOR out for both signature, for signatures from both me and the client. And all they have to do is open the doc, click sign, add a date, and all the information is already pre-filled. So that was a big, that was a hard to figure out to do no code because uh, you had to really figure out how to get data from one one platform to another. But uh, Zapier made it pretty simple once I figured it out. Cool. That's awesome. I mean, that, yeah. that, that sounds like the type of, it's one thing to be like someone filled out a form and then got an email, but to be like automating signing documents, which 10 years ago, you couldn't do that at all really effectively online. And now to have it totally automated without writing any code is awesome. Totally. Now the, the, where, where it falls short is it, it, it's an email experience versus a in-app in login experience. But I think that that's completely understandable and it's plenty for V1 of the platform. Well, one thing that's great about you is you're competing with the insurance industry where everyone, the, the user experience you expect is so miserable. No one's going to be like, oh, I wish that this this was in the app. Yep. yep. That's not even going to occur to people. Exactly. Yeah. They're going to be just so glad it's easy. Um, so, uh, and then, so those are the two things I've accomplished so far, which are pretty big. So today, um, I'm going to start today and tomorrow. I'm going to work on uh, building out the dashboard so that, uh, 
you know, once someone fills out that onboarding, I take that information, build their account, their login, and send them a log a login link, um, and then their dashboard's populated already with with their insurance policy information. Cool. So it sounds like you're making a whole lot of progress um, on the like onboarding them, getting everything set up. Is it still the case that the main challenge is automating the like ongoing support and stuff like that? Nope, that's actually already built. I built a help desk software, and we have I have chat bubbles everywhere. Um, and until people start using uh, the service and chatting in, um, it's fine. Uh, I, I have also have um, all the health insurance tools, quoting tools necessary to make on like online quoting possible, so that it's not a phone. It doesn't have to be a phone call or paper based quote. So that's more of like a downstream thing. Once I get once I get the product built and I start pushing people through the, the service flow, um, there will be uh, sort of like what you were dealing with last week, opportunities for, you know, root cause analysis where, Hey, did this, the, a conversation happens. Maybe it's a phone call. Maybe it's a text. Maybe it's a, um, an email. Maybe it's, maybe it's chat. How do we, uh, you know, how did, how did, why did that happen? Did it need to happen? Should we focus mm-hmm. on reducing this type of thing? Um, that's how I'll approach automating service. What, what the, what I'm doing initially, I should say automating support. Um, what I'm doing initially is saying, Hey, what are the things that I don't want to be on the phone call with someone for, and they don't want to be on a phone call for, and they actually want to be as easy as possible. Those are the things I'm focusing on. Um, and once I have that done, it's just a question of running. I want to get, you know, go from 10. I want to run my 10 beta users through it and test it. And then it's just, a, I'll be, I'll be able to refocus on customer acquisition. Awesome. So, I mean, it sounds like stuff's moving really fast right now. Yes. Yeah. And I, I, I want it to move faster, but at the same time going, actually, this is a lot of progress for one week. If I can just knock one key piece out per day, I'm on track within the next couple of weeks to be focused on customer acquisition. Yeah. Great. That's exciting. Yeah, so it is. Um, I, before we move on to the deep dive, I do have an important question for you. Yeah. It looks like you got a haircut. I, I did. How'd you get a haircut when every barber on the planet is shut down right now? I have a really good relationship with my hair stylist. You're breaking the rules, Rick. <laughs> um, so she um, she actually called me and said, hey, we're going to close. Um, do you want me to do you want to do a haircut before we close? And so I went in there. All right. And, uh, and it was, it was very well sanitized. <laughs> okay. So, uh, I, I feel good about it. Um, yeah. And she's a potential beta user for Lega Pelt because, um, the hairstylist, uh, the hair salon sort of industry is, you know, t- a 299 contractor typically a relationship with their employers. So they don't get group health insurance. So lots of people that cut hair by their own health insurance. Awesome. Yeah. Okay, deep dive topic. You call me out for not following quarantine? No, I was, I was, I, what, what I thought you might say is like you did it yourself or something like that. <laughs> oh, no. I was curious. <laughs> Does it look that bad? No, it looks good. I was about to be like, <laughs> man, Sable really knows what she's doing or something like that. <laughs> Sable would never cut my hair. Never. She would be too nervous about it. Yeah. <laughs> well, for um, the deep dive topic today, um, I had a pretty big moment uh, a week ago where I, I had a realization. I've been beating myself up a lot since October 2018, which is when I left People Keep. 
uh, immediately after leaving People Keep, I I posted a reflection on my on my personal website, and really the only times that I really I, after reflection, I was like, I made a lot of mistakes, right? But generally, I learned from them. The repeating mistake that I made that I re- got to the point of regret for me was related to how I made people feel, um, specifically on my team. Uh, and by team, I mean every person at the company, especially my management team, and especially the board, uh, the board of directors. And uh, and I and I analyzed that at the time, and I realized, well, yeah, it was because I would put, I would put how I made people feel you know, in those moments, um, above short-term or below short-term results and short-term results mean results in the next year, right? Like, and I, you know, I, I knew that that was the problem, but then that sort of led me on a quest for the, that I've been on for, uh, 15 months to understand how I can prevent that from happening again. When I'm in the same, I expect to be in the same position again. I, you know, know that I can't control that necessarily. And I'd be lucky to be in that situation again, but I do like, that is a goal I have and I expect myself to achieve that goal. Um, so, uh, I don't want to be in a situation where it like that again and not be able to perform better. And, and, and I don't want to be in that situation and create regret for myself again with how I manage people and make people feel. So anyway, I've been reflecting ton on this. I've, I, I've, most of my writing at ricklinquist.com has been around emotions and how that affects leadership and then how it affects teams. I, I got to a place about seven months, eight months after leaving people keep. So like mid 2019 where I was pretty sure uh, that I'd, I'd gotten back to impatience being the root cause. In other words, how I deal with impatience. So I put a, you know, I, I started working on, you know, most of 2019, second half of 2019, working on my response to impatience. Um, impatience, if you're not familiar with the definition, is basically something that happens when the cost of, of performing something or of doing something um, or, or accomplishing something uh, changes um, and increases. Uh, and you have a moment of pain, like you, you, you respond with, oh, crap. My expectations around the cost of this, typically it's time, um, is is changing, um, and I need to, uh, you know, do something about this. Um, and there are two uh, ways you can deal with impatience. One, you can shortcut, and that's what my response is first, and it's the emotional response. It's, hey, if you're at the grocery store. And the teller's taking longer than you expected. And there's five people and you've got a meeting in 10 minutes and you realize, oh crap, I'm not going to make it to the meeting. Do you cut people? Do you, um, you know, how do you Yell handle the that? teller or yeah. something? Yeah. Yes, exactly. And so um, costs can change in a couple of ways. One could be opportunity costs. So if you're going, if you're performing uh, a job and you, uh, you know, you're happy with the, what you're getting paid and you're happy with the job, but then all of a sudden um, you get a new opportunity. And let's just say the cost, like the, met- the, the, the cost of not taking that opportunity becomes higher than what it was previously. That can cause impatience too. So it, it's more complicated than, than just time, but 
it's um you know time is the best way to think about it so anyway i, I i've been working really hard on improving my response to impatience and i've done a really good job i haven't i have significantly reduced the negative consequences of impatience um over the last let's call it 10 months now um I had a I had a, a moment uh, a couple about a month ago where I lost my impatience for the for, to a level where it made people feel uncomfortable. Um, now in the moment, I, it was not nearly as drastic as anything I've done. So I want to compliment myself and say, "Hey, I'm doing better." But it forced some more reflection, and it, it, it really hit me because, you know, I, in the moment I realized what was happening. I was like, "Oh God, I'm so sorry to everyone," uh, which was good, but it. I, I, it put me on a journey to meet with every single person that was in the meeting and ask them like, what was their perspective after meeting with seven or eight people? I, the last person I talked to gives me the biggest nugget and it's, and, and it's, you know, he basically said, if you want to go far, you have to go together. Um, but if you want to go fast, you can go alone. Um, and that I know that quote, but, but then he backed it up with something. He said, man, um, it, when you, when you want to go far, you have to go together. And if you want to go together, you've got to, the, the process of going there matters as much as where you're going is get is getting there. And those two things have to be balanced. And it just clicked. I realized, man, I never... I knew that there were things it was important to make people happy, but I never really understood the balance between if you want to go far and you want to go with a team, you you really do have to balance how it feels for everyone involved to achieve the outcome and actually achieving the outcome. And I have never thought about team building that way. I might be, I might be unique here. I don't know, but, uh, anyway, I'm, I'm coming to this topic, recognizing that I think you're actually really good at this. And I have, I've had a couple of weeks to think about this now. I really want to know in this topic, how in practice you see, you do this at Less Annoying CRM because I think you have a really strong team and understand how to play this balance when one is more, is more important than the other. Um, you know, is one more important than the other, or is it truly a balance? You know, in other words, like if, if a team, if you have a team and you never accomplish anything, but you're having a lot of fun, that's not sustainable. Right. But, but if you, if you accomplish something, it doesn't feel good for the team to accomplish it, which was me at people keep a lot, then they don't want to play again, you know? And so it's, how do you balance that? Yeah. Well, and I appreciate the compliment saying I'm good at it, but I actually think I'm only good like like when you say there's balance, there's two things you need to do, and I'm good at one of them, and I actually think you're really good at the other one. Um, so it's I don't think it's as clean as I'm good, you're bad. It's we're good at opposite ends of the spectrum, and yeah, it's finding the right the right mix in the middle. But I think if you flip the the tables and say you know, the team's lethargic, they're not getting work done, the business is struggling. In that scenario, I think I, I'd i be asking you the same question. I'd be like, I don't know what to do. I All I'm doing is focusing on making people happy and stuff like that, and, and nothing's getting done. So it, mm. it could work the other way too, I think. Yep. Well, how? so I guess um, maybe, uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know how to 
start this conversation, but it's something mm-hmm. that's very important to me. And I don't know, I guess success for this would be some clarity as to how you, you know, now that now when someone, when you are as a leader aware of this balance that needs to be struck, mm-hmm. how do you sort of measure it and, or manage it? And what are some like things, what are some do's, what are some don'ts, what are some red alerts? Yeah. Um, yeah. Those kinds of things. Well, let's, if, if it's all right with you, can we start with a few constraints around this? Yes. Um, so first of all, this becomes pr- a problem when you're working with other people. Now, in a sense, you're always working with other people. You have your customers or whatever, but really it's your team that I think this comes up often with. And you don't have a team right now, and neither did I when I was at your stage. So one th- thing you can do to constrain this is to say, until you hire your first person, do your thing. Like, I was more like your, you are naturally when it was just me and Bracken. It wasn't about let's make this great environment and all that. It was I'm working 80 hour weeks and, you know, pushing myself and trying to hit numbers and all that. It's not until you bring more people. And so one thing I'll just say is like, you can push yourself really far alone and then say, now I want to go together. And then that's really when things have to change. And that can kind of be an advantage. I think that's a reason not to bring people on too early is because you have to transition away from that at that point. Do you buy that? I, I buy it. Yep. So, but I guess what I'm, what I'm realizing is my business with leg up health is highly like to get to any sort of meaningfulness is it's highly mm-hmm. dependent on bringing a team on. And yeah. so I, I look at it as like a key business assumption that needs to be de-risked. And so absolutely, if you look- but it, there's still a question of when, like how far can you get by yourself before it's time to bring that person on? I totally agree. But if I'm going after a, a, a situation, I guess here's my, yes, I agree with you. My caveat is I'm super worried about this and it's a threat to my business. You're worried about you not handling this properly or you're worried yes. about not. Okay. I, I'm worried. I'm worried about, um, the, there's a critical nature of this business in that it's a service business. So sooner than what what a SaaS company would need to do, I will need to hire service people. Yeah, what I'm calling health insurance coaches. And I guess um, I don't want to wait until I need to hire that person to have increased my confidence level and being able to do this. So I guess I don't need to necessarily solve the problem right now at leg up, but I need to have confidence in my ability to solve the problem later. Right, absolutely. And just to be clear, I'm, I'm not suggesting you should not be thinking about this until you need to. I guess I'm just saying, when you're doing the calculus of is now the right person, the right time to bring that person on, that's just one of the factors that should weigh in. Uh, a few other just like, I think these will, all these random thoughts will connect in the end. But Keep let going, me just, like, I'm going to shut up. I'd love to just hear you brain dump. So one is there's different types of employees and some are going to be a lot more responsive to the the way you naturally do things versus let's say the way I naturally do things. So like I have a culture that's very safe and people are happy, but nobody has the hunger. And there are some people who want the hunger. And actually the people who we've hired who had it, they left. They they weren't happy in my environment because I wasn't pushing them hard enough. They're like the people who are at the there's so many people who want to work at they want to be employee number five at Facebook. They know it was miserable. It was long hours and just incredibly difficult, but they want it. And so one thing I would also say is like, maybe the first few people you bring on, 
don't don't think I need to be there yet. Think these these are going to be more like peers. And I know maybe a topic we'll talk about in a couple of weeks is bring on like partners or you know kind of quasi co-founders. Hopefully, those are the types of people that don't need the type of sorry, this is like a negative term, but like the coddling that you're kind of t- like maybe you can be impa- impatient with those people in a way that you can't be impatient with most employees. My the data points in my life suggest that's not possible. Like, I think like you're a good person to ask. I was pretty impatient with you at times at Zane benefits. Did that make mm-hmm. you, how did that make you feel? I mean, in the moment it was not great. Um, you're the only person I've ever, sorry, I've had two people I've worked with closely that I like had real conflict with, but the thing is like with you, it was always productive and maybe I was kind of mad for a day or two, but then it was like, I mean, we were roommates, like, you know, there was so much trust built up and stuff like that. It was fine. I, I think toning it down a little would be good, but also like, I loved that period of my life. I was like, we're getting so much shit done and mm. there's probably a middle ground, but I don't think you have to go all the way towards like, this is a 100% safe, impatient environment. You can be like, let's be impatient and try not to get into shouting matches with each other. Right. Yeah. Yep. And I think I kind of did that by mistake because the first few people I hired were more like we were in startup mode at that time. And so I hired them with the promise of, oh, you're going to get rich and we're going to double every six months and all that. And then as we got more mature, it was like, this is a stable paycheck, you know, and it kind of changed the type of person we were recruiting. It, it changed the you know expectations that one could expect out of the, it changed the uh, return on and the cost, the net cost of working at less than CRM in terms of time and return. And that caused them probably to be become impatient with less than CRM. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, in some of them, it, it worked out fine for, I should say, like some of those people we hired in the early days worked out fine and they, they have that, the right level of impatience. And some of them were like, no, I have to go conquer the world. And when we're not doing that, um, the final random brain dump thought I have here, and then we can start trying to synthesize all this is like a lot of companies, it, it's really important when listening to advice and trying to follow other companies and stuff like that. What's their situation? So one example of this, uh, Basecamp is kind of a thought leader in terms of bootstrapped startup to last type companies. Basecamp is speculated to be making something like $50 million a year in profit. Uh, Who knows if that's true, but like huge amounts of money. It's a 50 person team and they are certainly making more than 10 million and possibly close to 100 million in revenue. Um, They give a lot of advice that's like, yeah, if, if the founder of the company is pulling off $10 million a year, yeah, do that thing. Like be calm, right? Uh, if if you're, the, the reality is most people who care about this conversation that we're having right now, probably most people listening are not in that situation. They're not profitable or they don't even have a business at all yet. I do think you kind of, there's a struggle period in the early days where it's about survival. You, you talk about the whatever hierarchy of needs from time to time. Businesses have that same hierarchy of needs. And like, you don't get to be picky about this stuff when you're, just trying to survive. But I think it's way more important when you say, okay, we're profitable, we're default alive. Now, do we really have to work people that hard? Do we really have to push that hard to hit the deadline? Because a lot of stuff Less Knowing Serum does, we couldn't have gotten away with the first few years. Interesting. I think um, I think right now, I'm more interested in the early days and how to bring on people, how to bring on people like you, um, who, or, or like you 10 years ago, um, that are super bright, motivated, 
and um, you know make it feel make it feel good to work hard with. So, I, I, are there any tips and tricks to or or do's and don'ts for like if you got hi- if I hired you back in two thousand eight today, what were the th- what are the things that you'd want out of a leader and and boss? Mm-hmm. And what are the thing and, and culture, and what are the things that you would that would have driven driven you crazy? Yeah, I think that what I would do is break it into there's motivation, and then there's execution. And I think when these two get muddied together, it can be really problematic. And in particular, like one thing I've seen from you and I've heard from you say about yourself, but if I can frame it differently, it's when someone's motivated. It's not a question of are they working hard enough or something like that, but they're being managed as if it's a motivation problem. Um, now, what I mean is if you can assume somebody's intrinsically motivated to work, which that's one of the things we do at Lesson Learning Serum, we just say we're going to hire high quality people um, and trust that they're going to come into work and want to do a good job. And nothing about the management is about that. It's they want to do a good job. They're talented. They're smart. What do I need to do to put them in that position? And one one thing here is like they're again maybe in the early days you can't get away with this, but th- I don't think deadlines are helpful. If this person's smart and talented and they're working hard and they're not hitting the deadline, either the deadline was wrong or you did not give them the support they needed to get it done. I think you're saying two things there that are really important. The first one is hire hire the right people. And it sounds like you have a pretty solid definition of the right people, and that has to do with intrinsic motivation, among other mm-hmm. things. But that's intrinsic- huge for me. That's yes. number one. That's number one, because that takes away the motivation, you, you having to be a motivator. And honestly, if you had to motivate people, you'd probably get impatient too. Yeah. And, I, and I, there are a lot of managers out there. Like I think I'd be a terrible manager at a big Fortune 500 company, because the reality is most of your employees don't give a shit about their job, and you have to motivate them. I would be terrible at that. But if you can put yourself in a position where you're surrounded by people who don't need that, it totally changes your responsibility as a manager. I mean, that's huge. So hiring, like who you bring on is as important to this puzzle as as how you treat them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and we say that, you know, anytime I'm like interviewed or asked for advice on like hiring, what do you look for in a candidate? Intrinsic motivation is always the number one thing. Now, that's not always easy to identify. But as much as you can, I think that's huge. Yeah. Well, how do you identify it? So I think it depends on the role. Um, so let's take a CRM coach, which is kind of the customer service type role at Less Annoying CRM. You might say, well, what are the skills that this person needs? And yes, we do evaluate that. Are they a really good writer? Are they charismatic when talking to people and stuff like that? But you can also ask other questions and get at why Why do they want this job? And so, People are surprisingly bad at understanding what answer you want and lying to you. Like that's what anyone in an interview should do is they should be like, I know what this person wants to hear and I'm going to tell them that. Um, You can pretty easily tell a lot of people who apply for the job are saying, well, I love the 20% time, Uh, 20% times one day a week to work on other projects. And all their questions are about that. It's like, oh, okay, you're, you're interested in this as a stepping stone, or they're saying, well, I want to start a business one day. And that's fine if you want to start a business one day, but that shouldn't be like, I want you to want to be a CRM coach. I don't want you to see it as a stepping stone to the next thing. So the people who really excel are people who are just like, well, I was working at another job and we had all these metrics we had to hit and stuff like that. And like, I could tell the customers just hated it. 
And I just was really frustrated that we didn't get to spend time actually helping customers. And then I heard about less knowing CRM and it sounds like you actually give us that time. That's an answer where I hear it and I'm like, I'm not going to have to do anything to motivate you. All I'm going to have to do is allow you to help people and you're going to want to do that and you're going to go do your work. That's interesting. So ask why they want the job and judge them based on their answer. What what else? Like that's you probably do more than just ask one question. Well, and, and I actually almost wouldn't even exactly ask that question because the reality is the way you ask the question might give away the what you're looking to hear, but we kind of get at that answer by a variety of things. So no matter what they say, we're like, let's talk about 20% time. You can see, do they really latch onto that and brighten up? Or do they, you know, are they like, well, I don't know. I'm open to different things. I'm, I'm excited about it, but you know. Yeah. It sounds like uh, you're basically trying to create an authentic conversation with them about the role and about the company and watching them emotionally respond, body language respond, Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, what question, you know, what, what curiosity do they have and what, is it positive curiosity? Is it defensive, negative cur- curiosity? And, uh, and yeah, I, I think I get it. And something we do, I'm, I'm sure there's a way to reproduce this when it's your first hire, but we have people who are peers take the, the candidate out to like coffee or something, get them outside the office. They don't feel like they're talking to a boss um, change the scenery and and they might open up a little bit. And again, just understanding who they are as a person is really the main thing we're looking for there. And that'll tell you, will they come in and be motivated to do the work? Mm-hmm. Um, now that's, that's one, I think that's an important thing, but that's different from not getting impatient. But if you just say, I can, I can set a constraint on myself, motivating this person's not my job. I can take that off my plate. I, I do think that simplifies, well, what is my job as the leader here? And it might be easier not to get impatient that way. I like it. Um, so I think that conversation then as well, how do you manage? How do you lead? If, if we take the motivation piece away, how do you prevent yourself from getting um, impatient? Now, earlier you said I said two things. We only talked about one of them, but so I was kind of saying no deadlines was the next point. Yeah. So, so, you know, one part is picking the right people. And the other part is once you have the right people treating them the right way. And it sounds like one, one way in which people can get, you can hire great people, but you can get yourself in trouble with them if you arbitrarily set deadlines. Yeah. Yeah. And this is something I really struggled with because I went too far in the opposite direction. I'm like, really, I hate confrontation. I I don't like like if I ever had to lay someone off, it would just kill me. And I, maybe that'll happen one day. I hope not. But like that, I'll do anything I can to avoid any even remotely negative thing. And I viewed all forms of management as that. Um, and over the last year or two, something I think I've gotten better at is being able to manage people in ways that they like. Um, what I identified, especially with the programmers on the team, because that's the main team I manage right now, is... I'd like give them a project and, and I'd spec the project out well. It's like, here are the mock-ups. Here's like descriptions of how all the interactions should work. And then it just kind of like, I'd be like, take it away. And and the project would last too long and all that. But I was like, no, no pressure, nothing like that. What I realized is they actually wanted me to put a little pressure on them, but in a healthy way. They wanted to understand, well, how long should this take? Because if it's taking longer than that, that's a great sign that I should pick my head up and re-examine this. They, they almost wanted you to gamify it for them a little bit and give them a challenge. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's a it's definitely the challenge is one part of it, and I think you can. So I, I when I said no deadlines, we didn't even talk about dates originally. Now what we do is we say we're going to break these into two week chunks. Maybe it'll take four weeks. It's fine if it does. There's there's no situation where you have to work nights or weekends or like sprint to catch up. But I we're going to try and plan a two week chunk, and if it takes longer after you're done, we're going to look back and say what were we wrong about. And maybe it's an innocent thing. There was something hidden there that took an extra two weeks and we couldn't have possibly seen it coming. But maybe it's just like, well, we planned that all wrong. Uh, next time we plan it, let's go smaller. How often do you actually hit the deadline versus or the how, how often do you hit the estimated uh, delivery date versus don't? Um, I think it depends on the employee, but I say I shoot for hitting it 25 percent of the time, probably. You don't want it to be impossible to achieve, but you don't want it to be so easy that you always achieve it. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of like a, a mini two-week OKR. Mm-hmm. And there's different terms for this. Like in Agile, you'd call this a sprint. Um, Basecamp has this shaping process that they, I forget what, they, they have a term for this too, but um, we call them jogs instead of sprints because a sprint implies unsustainable, like you can't keep this up. And a jog is just like, you know, you're going somewhere at your own pace kind of. Um, but yeah, if it's two to three weeks, I'd say it's not uncommon for people to hit that, but more often than not, it ends up taking a little longer. That's, that's helpful. Um, something else crossed my mind and it, it relates to, uh, change management. So in the early days of a startup, things are changing at a really rapid pace. Um, and you know, at a venture back startup, it's always changing. Right. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, so, so, uh, hypothetically, one of the benefits of a startup to last company is that at some point you get to a place where the rate of change of the organization slows down. Um, and that's one of the benefits, uh, it's controlled change, but, um, in the early days of any company, you're, you're, you're iterating on a pace, which, um, takes a lot of mental energy to keep up with. One of the challenges I've had in the past is we were in a lot of change at people keep from venture due to venture capital, but also due to just regulatory changes and, you know, bad deadlines, you know, all, all kinds of running out of money, mm-hmm. um, you know, plans not getting hit, that kind of thing. So, um, when, when change needed to be communicated or expectations needed to be changed, um, oftentimes the way I would approach it was I would pull everyone in a room and communicate it. Right. And I put a lot of thought into my communication and I, I maybe talked to one or two people before, but most of the time people would look at me and go like, what the hell is this guy talking about? <laughs> right. And, uh, mm-hmm. I, I, I think I have this expectation that I can process. I generally can process things pretty fast, but I'm also willing to put a lot of time in and I discount the time I put in to process things. Like I, I think, I don't know what it is, but I, maybe it's pattern recognition, but somebody, someone tells me something, I, I don't just sit there and take it. I start asking questions and mm-hmm. I, I, I figure out a way to understand what they're trying to communicate. People don't do that with me generally. So especially in that, in that group setting, right? So uh, one obvious thing I can do that I probably wasn't doing is be more thoughtful about communicating changes and expectations or changes significant change at the company. Um, and if it's a, if it's a company wide change 
or a team might change. It's something that gets communicated individually first and give it people opportunity to express their thoughts and feelings around the change. Um, and then, you know, once you've met with everyone on in the group one-on-one, then you bring everyone together. Mm-hmm. Is that accurate? Yeah, I think that's great. I, so I have so many thoughts about this. I, we may, can you, can you go past the hour here? Yes. Yes. Okay. Um, yes, I, I think that's totally accurate. There's obviously a size of company where that you can't talk to everyone one-on-one. So I have two things I would suggest on this. One is we talk in the in the past, we've spent a lot of time talking about the word trust. And I think for a startup slash company, trust has to be first and foremost. One of the things your employees have to trust about you is that you did this the right way, even if they weren't the one who they weren't in on the conversation. They have to know you had the conversation with someone. So if you only go talk to a few people, but sometimes everyone is sometimes in the conversation. So I do these weekly group brainstormings uh, where I grab three random people from the company. We brainstorm something. And very often a major decision comes out of those. Everyone wasn't in on that, but they're in on it sometimes. And so when I make one of these decisions, they're like, oh, I, I'm sure he got people's feedback on this. Yeah. So what you're saying is the decision matters much less than the way people feel think you went about making the decision. Totally. Um, and you know, it's not being right or wrong. It's about making the best decision possible. And people judge you based on how other people at the company feel about your decision. Yeah. Um, and so you need some allies at the very at the very least. And then also the more input you take from others that are trusted at the organization, the people associate that with the likeliness of a better decision. Yep. Whether that's and, true or not. Right. And I, I actually think you can mitigate a lot of this by saying what you just said. Like when you give the announcement, you can just be like, here's a deal. Um, I don't know the right response, but we have to do something. I talked with a lot of you about this. This is the best thing we've got. We've just got to commit to it. Yep. This is the best decision right now. Yeah. And so a couple more points on that. So first of all, um, one of the benefits of bringing people into the conversation is not necessarily that they're going to help you make the right decision. Sometimes they will. But a lot of times it's to show them the complexity behind it. Because when you get in a conference room and say, here's what we're doing, I've made the decision, a lot of people are going to look at it and be like, well, that's stupid. But if you sit down with them and you're like, well, here are three options and there's pros and cons to each, which one do you do? My experience with my team is most of the time they're just like, I'm glad I don't have to make this decision. Yikes. (laughs) And that gives them a lot of trust that whatever you do, they're like, well, I, I sat in the room and I understand how hard of a choice that was. Totally. Yeah. And I, I did the terrible job of, of doing that. I oftentimes would get to that place because I thought about that stuff all the time and mm-hmm. uh, I'd get to the place where it's like, this is the only, this is the best decision with, with, with what we have right now. We have, we can't wait another day to make a decision. I'd make the decision and I communicate the decision, but I wouldn't, um, I would, I would not qualify it with, I'm not sure if this is the right decision. Um, but it's the best decision I can, we can make right now. I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't um, put the decision in sort of draft phase and go, Hey, here's what I'm thinking. Beat it up. Let me tell you what I'm here. Here's how I'm making the decision and, and doing that with just say the leadership team. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, one-on-one first. So I, I didn't do the, the whole like idea of one, bringing people along one-on-one before you make a final decision um, and being transparent with your thinking process and also being uh, what's the right word. Uh, humble about your ability to make 
the perfect decision. Um, and I think, uh, I think that is something that I, I, my impatience oftentimes would cause me to shortcut those things and it would create, uh, fires on the back end that worked actually trust destroyers. Uh, so if you look at like trust as like an asset and, you know, it can go, it can be positive or it can be negative. Mm-hmm. I think if you communicate your way, trust builds, it may take a little bit more time up front, but that time is one time that cost is one time. Um, and you have this asset that you built as a result of it called trust. On the other hand, what I was doing was I'd have that, I had a less time cost up front that was one time, but I would create a liability called fear or negative trust. Right. <laughs> um, and I'd have to spend even the, the rest, I'd even have that one cost of time, uh, probably higher because I'd have to play cleanup. Uh, but it gets harder. It viciously gets harder and harder. The more that you drive a negative balance in that trust asset. Um, and, uh, you know, you know, it's, everything gets harder. Yeah. I've, so the analogy I've heard here is a trust battery. Mm. Um, so you have to charge it up and then you can spend it. If you try to spend it without building it up first, bad things happen, which I think is kind of what you're talking about here. Totally. I wonder if um, that is like not doing enough to uh, the battery suggests that there's no negative, right? Like there's either no trust, but there's this concept of distrust. Like I have um, experienced enough of you to like that it's harder and harder to charge the battery. Right. Right, Yeah. That, that makes sense. So like um, I think this idea that, when you are spending time on something and you have a problem with impatience, you, you, your impatience is telling you to shortcut the time and save on the time. But in reality, you're creating a debt that's going to take much less time to pay down, much more time to pay down. And it's going to make everything you do after this moment harder and take more time because you don't, because the speed of trust is significantly faster than the, uh, I don't know what the right word is, but like the, the stickiness of distrust. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I totally agree. The, the debt, I think the debt analogy works well here. Um, two little tricks I've run into. So there are situations where sometimes you need to move really fast and you don't have time to talk to people. I think you can mitigate that, the the downside a lot by just talking through your thought process. Don't just say, here's the decision. Say, I thought about all these things and this one doesn't work for this reason and that one doesn't work for that reason. It, it affects, it's sort of shortcutting it in a bad way, but it's going through the process you would have gone through if you'd had time to sit down with everyone and talk about them. But what type of decisions, like what, what, what situation are you in where you can't sit down with like three trusted people at your company and get their take? Yeah, like, you're right. It's very, very rare. I, I say, this what is the situation? We did. Well, we just had this with, this is not a huge decision, but shutting down the office. We made that decision very, very quickly. And I did talk with the partners about it, but there you go. Like, I, I mean, it's that, that makes it that, that alone says like, it's not Tyler in a vacuum. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it, you know, I, I've, I've vetted this with the partners. We are all in agreement on this. We had to make this decision fast. Here's why. Yeah. I, yeah. I think Agreed. it's, the, I think it's the, I think what you got, I, I'm coming to the conclusion and feel free to beat me up on this, that, decisions made in a perceptive when people perceive that you're making decisions in a vacuum, uh, then that, that reduces trust. Yeah. I agree. And you can't do it. Yep. You can't come, come off as a, whether, whether it's the right decision or not, you can't come off 
to your team members as making decisions in a vacuum. Right. The, and that, that's kind of the the point of this conversation, the way you framed it at the beginning is it's about the process of doing something rather than the outcome. The outcome, your decision might have been fine. It's really the process. Um, wh- one other situation I found sometimes comes up. There, There is a harm in involving people in a decision the wrong way where like democracy can, you basically end up, you know, a camel is a horse designed by committee. Um, you don't want it to be designed by committee. And as the CEO or founder or whatever, you do still need to be able to put your, your thumb on the scale and make the decision about what's going to happen, but let people in on it. There's different ways to do this, but one trick I've found helpful trick makes it sound nefarious, but one strategy is uh, involve people in the process in serial. So say, I'm going to meet with one person and I'm going to start with, we, I have no idea what we're going to do, get to the end and say, I, I don't know where we're going to go. Thank you for your thoughts. I'm going to put some thought into this and then have another meeting with someone else. And you get to decide where that next meeting starts, right? If the first one, like the, the person had a lot of ideas that you're like, this is not going to work. No way. You can just be like, Hey, person number two, we're starting from scratch, right? Um, you don't have to, this doesn't have to be a democracy, but just people feeling heard and knowing you listened to them and understood, even if you don't end up going with what they said. And if you just chain together these conversations and start each one where you want, each person's only getting a snapshot. They feel heard in that snapshot. And then at the end, they say, we all had our say, but ultimately the CEO made the decision and and we're behind that. I think that's a good way to balance things. And I, and I think through that conversation, if, if people are really far apart on things, um, you can use that as an opportunity to say, Hey, well, we need to discuss this as a group because we're not yeah, on the same something's page. wrong here. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, one final thought I have here on like a good technique that I use a lot. Uh, are you familiar with, if I say the cats on the roof, what I mean by that? I have no idea. This is a joke that my family, it's like a family joke, but I've met other people who had this as well. The joke is, um, there's two families that live next to each other. Uh, one of the families goes out of town and asks the kid next door, hey, can you take care of the cat? Um, and the kid's like, sure. Family leaves. They call in halfway through the trip and say, "Can you? how's the cat doing? And the kid says, bad news, the cat's dead. Sorry. Um, and the family says, oh, this is terrible. Like to hear about this, it's going to ruin our vacation. Next time, tell us the cat's on the roof and won't come down. And then when we get back, you can say, oh, the cat wouldn't come down and it died. And we'll be a little more ready for it when the bad news comes. And so the kid's like, okay. Then the family goes out of town and says, hey, can you take care of uh, grandma? And then they call in halfway through the trip and say, how's grandma doing? And he says, grandma's on the roof. That's the joke. (laughs) (laughs) So Sorry if if it took a little bit to get there. But that's, I say this all the time. Everyone who works at Less Knowing Serum knows what cats on the roof means. What it means is there's a decision coming. Not, it doesn't always have to be bad news, but it's just a big decision. And like, I'm going to warm you up for it. I'm going to prime you a little bit. And so you can say something like, like when I was working on Sparse, which was this big project that I really hyped up, I got everyone super excited about it. And then we killed it. I didn't just kill it. I was kind of like, you know, two weeks before, well, some other priorities have come up and we're kind of evaluating, should we, should we do this or should we do that? And I wasn't lying. It's not like I knew we were going to kill it. Can I say something? I think I know where you're going with this. Are, are you basically saying that you probably, you got to a point where you were 99% sure that Sparse needed to be killed. And rather than just coming out and saying that, you, you, you sort of said, started bringing awareness to the information that led you to that decision. 
so that other people could get there on their own? More or less, um, you want to be careful because you don't want to like straight up lie to people. You don't want to say that there hasn't been a decision if there has. But what I find is most of the time, if a decision takes me two weeks, I'm leaning strongly one direction at the very beginning. And yeah, just tease that, get people, I think letting people come to it on their own is the right way to phrase that. But then when you do deliver the full news, everyone's kind of like, I had, I had a chance to object to this. I saw it coming a little bit. I mean, it's not just totally taking them by surprise that way. Yep. Or this is the right decision because I will, I have the information that, mm-hmm. uh, that I needed to, I would have made the same decision on my own. Yep. And we do this with customers. The reason people at the company know it is we do this with customers too, where it's like, we're going to, everyone thinks we're working on this feature next, but this other thing came up. Let's cats on the roof this so that customers can start preparing for it. And how does that play out with a customer in that situation? It depends. It might be just communication over the newsletter. We might be like, hey, a bunch of exciting things coming up. We had to shift some priorities around or whatever. Um, if there's a, in, a, a in, sometimes like a bigger customer might come along and be like, hey, can I, can I prepay you? Uh, to to build this thing, or can I pay extra or something? And we may be in negotiations, and we we might cats on the roof like this is going to be an amount of money that will not make sense for you, but let's talk or something like that. That way, when you go into the conversation, they're like, I I'm ready for this to be an astronomical amount of money that I'm not going to be willing to pay. And what what's the amount that you throw out? A million dollars? No, I mean we wouldn't have the conversation in bad faith, but it might be fifty thousand, which for a uh, for a big account, might be willing to pay it, but sometimes it's like a two-person company, and it's like you're not going to pay what this would take. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Anyway, um, I I just rambled a lot, but I think cats on the roof, involve people in the decision, communicate stuff early, be transparent about all the things you thought through. That's a really good way to kind of build that trust and get people on the same page as you. Yeah. So the three things we've covered um, as far as takeaways: one is um, first, you got to hire people who don't cause you to become impatient with their motivation. Um, that's a really frustrating thing to deal with. And very few people can, very few motivated people can succeed in that situation. Second, um, if you got the right people, uh, don't, don't micromanage them based on arbitrary deadlines, avoid hard deadlines if you can, um, and figure out the right way to set targets that make people, that get the best out of people and motivate people, get the best out of people, already motivated people. Um, and then third, uh, decision like decisions you make as a leader can destroy trust and build trust, but but it's um, the most important thing is the process that you go about um, making that decision and making that transparent to people, so that they uh, it it is a trust builder versus a trust um, de- you know de- de- reducer. Um, so I guess uh, is there anything else that that I'm missing? Is there another core category of this is like leadership decisions, leadership hiring, and then leadership deadlines. Uh, Yeah. I mean, I think we started with what, what causes someone to be impatient? How can you lead in a way that avoids impatience? And I realize we're already pretty long here, so I won't go on and on about this, but the final thing I'll mention, I think is you need to manage your own mental state. And part of it is about your own expectations. It's it's yes about saying to the employee, this is a soft deadline, not a hard deadline and managing their expectations. But it's also going into it and saying, you know what, if this isn't, you know, I want this to be done by a certain date, but if it's not, 
I'll be fine. And you can make decisions as a company. You can put yourself in a situation where the company fails if you don't hit a deadline, or you can put yourself in a position where if you don't hit a deadline, whatever, it's fine. And you just need to be deliberate about that in advance. Yeah. The the term, I saw a phrase for this, it's anticipation instead of expectation. So that's what you're really saying with your deadline framework that you use. It's like, we anticipate we can get this done in two weeks, but we don't expect to. And if we do, great. If we don't, we'll reflect on it and then we will create a new anticipation. Yeah. And I think that's kind of the startup to last way. Like if you're trying to be, I'm going to be a billion dollar company five years from now, you you have to push and you have to do those uncomfortable things. But if you're just like, I want this to be sustainable and it, it'll take as long as it takes, you can make decisions that allow yourself that timeline, right? Don't overhire. If you're burning money, yeah, you'll if you don't hit this deadline, you'll you'll go out of business. But if you're not burning money, if you're profitable, if you're default alive, you can take your time on these things. That's good. Well, thank you for sharing all that with me. It was really valuable. Um, cool. Yeah, I, I love this topic. This is I'm, gonna, I'm definitely going to listen to this episode a few times. Um, well, uh, hey everyone, thank you for listening. If you liked this episode, I have two favors to ask. First, please write a review on the podcast app of your choice because reviews play a huge role in helping other people discover useful podcasts. Second, if you know any founders or aspiring founders of independent startups, please tell them about Startup to Last. And if you'd like to review past topics and show notes, visit startuptolast.com. I'll see you next week. All right. See you.